This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, a very special show. I traveled to Washington, D.C. earlier this week on business and had a chance to return to the West Wing for the first time in years and sat down with Dan Pfeiffer, senior advisor to President Obama, a man who's been with him since he was Senator Obama with nothing more than a long-shot chance of winning the presidency. All of the moments, all of the triumphs, and all of the challenges and toughest moments facing the 44th president, Dan has been an upfront witness, the kind of experience that only a handful of individuals ever get to experience in a lifetime. As I visited this week, Mahmoud Abbas was also at the White House, the Mideast peace process at a precarious moment. Also on everyone's mind, Crimea and the deteriorating relationship with Russia's President Putin. And then there was Malaysian Air Flight 370, still a total mystery as Dan and I sat down together. But also perhaps turning a corner on the Affordable Care Act, approaching 5 million enrollees as the days tick down toward the March deadline. Pfeiffer and his team were taking every new trick out of the bag, including a much-talked-about conversation with comedian Zach Galifianakis for his Between Two Ferns program on the Funny or Die website. High risk, high reward. In a second, my conversation with Dan Pfeiffer, senior advisor to President Barack Obama. People of the United States. This is POTUS. We're here for our first ever polyoptic segment here in the West Wing of the White House, my old haunt, talking with Dan Pfeiffer, senior advisor to President Barack Obama. Dan, I wanted to have you on the show for a long time. So much is happening this week. Thanks a lot for spending a few minutes with us today. Thanks for having me. First, before we get to the Affordable Care Act and the push to get as many enrollees as possible this month before the deadline, this week using the annual filling out of the March Madness brackets as a hook, Dan, the still-evolving story of Air Malaysia Flight 370. A Boeing 777 belonging to Malaysia Airlines has reportedly crashed into the sea off Vietnam with 239 people on board. State media there says the aircraft came down near Vietnam's To Chu Island. Malaysian authorities have not yet confirmed the crash and say no wreckage has been found. Contact was lost two hours into the flight from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing, where relatives faced an agonizing wait after Flight 370 was shown to be delayed. Most on board were Chinese and Malaysian, but passengers were of 14 nationalities, among them Australians, Americans and French citizens. It has to be one of the most bizarre occurrences in five years that have been filled with bizarre occurrences. It's a Friday night... You're hearing scattered and unconformed reports about a missing Boeing 777, not the kind of breaking news you hear every day. Well, I mean, certainly uh, that was a very um, disturbing report. You know, it has become more disturbing as time has gone, as more facts have come to light. Um, it's not your typical Friday night, but uh, things like this tend to happen on Friday nights. With just when you're about, you think you're about to go home. Something like that happens and sort of changes the nature of your weekend. You said recently that you were one of the first to share the news with the world that the president would address the nation following the killing of Osama bin Laden. That was another extraordinary weekend occurrence. Good evening. Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world 
that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda, and a terrorist who's responsible for the murder of thousands of innocent men, women, and children. So on that Friday night a few weeks ago, I'm home and comfortable with my family, and I'm seeing these tweets about Flight 370 turn on the tube, and I'm thinking, well, the West Wing must be percolating the coffee and ordering the pizza on this one because it has the feeling of an all-nighter in the sit-room. Was it a lost weekend for you, too? Well, I mean, there, we have folks in, our, in the National Security Council and other places who you know, are obviously much more intimately involved in this than I am. This is one of those things that we track carefully. This would be a different situation if it was not one where the Malaysian government was in the lead and we were simply in the position of assisting. Uh, but obviously it changed what, we, what everyone was talking about that weekend, what folks around here were thinking of. Uh, and that, you know, that happens, you know, as you know, world events uh, intrude fairly often. Another profound and patriotic event that happened this week at the White House was the unique ceremony to bestow the Congressional Medal of Honor on soldiers, sailors and airmen for conspicuous gallantry. But today was different. Today, the medal went to 24 honorees or their families, those Hispanics, African-Americans and Jews who might have been deserving of it in earlier wars, but re- received a lesser form of recognition. The review was ordered during the Bush years, but a very special moment huh, for President Obama to be hanging the medal on these deserving soldiers. You see, for their gallantry under fire, each of these soldiers was long ago recognized with the Army's second highest award, the Distinguished Service Cross. But ask their fellow veterans, ask their families, and they'll tell you that their extraordinary deeds merited the highest recognition. And today, we have the chance to set the record straight. Yeah, the president is, uh, I mean, this is one of his his most uh, sort of solemn responsibilities is is to do the Medal of Honor ceremonies. And this one's particularly special because of the amount of people who's, the the number of recipients and the fact that their bravery has gone unrecognized for so long. And so this means a lot to him. And uh, it's it's just special to be around it. Whenever we get one new Medal of Honor winner, it makes us proud to have their ranks reinforced by two dozen really stepping out of the darkness. It's a special week for the country. Yeah, it's, very, it's, very, it's a very special event. I'm Josh King on Polyoptics, talking with Dan Pfeiffer, senior advisor to President Obama. And this week, Dan, it's the beginning of March Madness. And I know you're a basketball fan, and you can almost mix business with pleasure. That issue that now covers the skin of the White House website, 16 sweet reasons to get covered. Business and pleasure, for sure. Well, this is, we are getting down to uh, the end of open enrollment. Folks, last chance to get health care in 2014, March 31st, uh, so a couple weeks here. And we are looking through every way possible, either using March Madness, you know, over the next couple weeks here, uh, the president's interview with Zach Galifianakis on Between Two Ferns, um, to draw attention and really get information about the Affordable Care Act to, fo- to folks who don't have insurance. And these tend to be folks who, you know, they don't uh, get their news through traditional sources. They're not sitting at home watching Meet the Press and the CBS Evening News or reading the New York Times. And so we're looking, especially young people, looking for alternative paths to get it to, to get them information. Sorry, I had to cancel a few times. My mouse pad broke last week, and I had to get my great aunt some diabetes shoes. And uh... you know what, Zach? It's no problem. I mean, I have to say, when I, when I heard that, like people actually watch this show, I was I was actually pretty surprised. Hi, welcome to another edition of Between Two Ferns. I'm your host Zach Galifianakis, and uh, my guest today is uh, Barack Obama, President Barack Obama. Good to be with you, Zach. 
You were talking recently about how people now get their information through Twitter, and it's not just the 140 characters, but rather the video imagery and graphics you put behind them. And one of the fascinating New York Times graphics that came out this week was that a 50-state analysis of just who signed up for health insurance under the Affordable Care Act. You're now about 75% of your goal with about 4.2 million people enrolled. It's the kind of graphical evidence that needs to be put to skeptics. And you may not be at your goal, but 4.2 million lives fills a lot of Final Four basketball arenas with insured Americans. Well, I think if you think back to the very dark days of October when healthcare.gov was essentially broken, uh, the fact that we're at 4.2 million, um, that, or we're now over 5 million as of yesterday, okay, great. Um, we... That, I mean, that seems impo- seemed impossible to imagine at the time. And so that's huge progress. There's much more work uh, to do. And every additional, you know, what's the end goal here? There's not some magic number where healthcare.gov works or doesn't work. Every new person is, helps the system, and every, that new person is individually being helped because they will have affordable health care that they don't currently have. And so, we're, you know, we're going to do everything we can to try to get information out of people, get people to sign up. And, um, you know, we've had a lot of success. The... 15 million people watched uh, the Between Two Ferns video with Zach Galifianakis, which is an amazing thing. That's twice as many has watched any video we've done from the White House. Uh, someone who spent a lot of time looking at how people get information and how uh, people go from online to signing up for things. Um, nearly 90,000 people watched all six minutes and 30 seconds of that video and then clicked on the link to healthcare.gov. And I am confident just knowing the demographics of the folks who watch between two ferns that these are 90,000 many of that 90,000 folks we wouldn't have gotten otherwise so before we move on here's another clip of Barack Obama and Zach Galifianakis on between two ferns and I gotta say if you haven't spent much time watching the show take a look at some of the other segments you have to appreciate the way the faux gross banter unfolds on a regular basis first question in 2013 you pardoned the turkey what do you have planned for 2014 we'll probably pardon Another turkey. We, we do that every Thanksgiving. Was that depressing to you, seeing a, a, a one turkey kind of taken out of circulation, a turkey you couldn't eat? So how does this work? Do you send uh, Ambassador Rodman to North Korea on your behalf? I had read somewhere that you'd be sending Hulk Hogan to Syria, or is that more of a, a job for Tanya Harding? Zach, he's, he's not our ambassador. What should we do about North Ikea? North. Why don't we move on? I watched it, and I know what goes into a White House comedy production, whether it's a White House correspondence dinner speech or an in-house video special or something in partnership with the comedy shows or Hollywood, but Zach Galifianakis, Between Two Ferns, there's some off-the-wall and you know sometimes cringeworthy stuff. You watch some of Zach's earlier work, his interviews with Charlize Theron, Ben Stiller, Steve Carell. You're swimming in some dangerous waters with the President of the United States. It was uncomfortable with them how uncomfortable was it doing the shtick in the diplomatic reception room i think it was this was it the president knew what he was getting into he knew this was going to be in good fun he understood the medium and the sort of the between two ferns shtick and um so he was prepared for it the folks at funny or die have have worked very well with us over the course of the last few years particularly on um, affordable care act um so we felt good about doing this we knew we were taking a big risk as uh, as i said to someone a few weeks ago we knew that this was going to cause Dave Gergen to have, potentially have a heart attack um, to give it, you know, because we're breaking convention. And we have believed from the beginning of our time here that if you're going to communicate in the new media environment of uh, of this era, you're going to have to break convention. 
um, do things the other presidents have never done, which is why President Obama was the first president to appear on a late night comedy show, the first president to appear on daytime talk, why we've been on ESPN a lot, why he does things like um, fell in his bracket on ESPN, like, which he did uh, this week. Um, so you have to do that. And we take a little bit of guff from people when we do because it's something different. But I'm confident that all the things we do, the next president will do, and then some things we didn't do because that's, that's what you, you have to work so much harder in this day and age to get your message out than you did in the days of Ronald Reagan when you can give one national televised speech, reach everyone who had a television, uh, and call a night. I have to know, what is it like to be the last black president? Seriously? What's it like for this to be the last time you ever talk to a president? It, it must kind of stink, though, that you can't run, you know, three times. You no, know, actually, I think it's a good idea. Uh, you know, if I ran a third time, it'd be sort of like doing a third Hangover movie. Didn't really work out very well, did it? From what I've heard you say in the past, you've said things like Gergen is going to have a heart attack, or this isn't Michael Deaver's White House, or even some things about the administration that I worked in in the 1990s, but. You have, but you've not seen Dan until maybe this year, and I don't know if it points back to Dennis McDonough, John Podesta, you or Jennifer Palmieri, or a combination of all you guys. You guys saying, well, let's loosen the tie a bit. We have three years left. We're not going to be on the ballot anymore. Let's have a little more fun. I felt like you were really going down the straight and narrow visually, image-wise and schedule-wise. And a happy birthday. Thank you very happy much. Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. How did you celebrate Sunday? What'd you do? Uh, had a bunch of friends come over who mm-hmm. I uh, don't see that often from high school and college. Right. And uh, we played a little golf and then we tried to play a little basketball and it was a sad state of affairs. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a bunch of old guys. And yeah, yeah. And where's the ibuprofen and yeah. all that <laughs> yeah, stuff? Right. Yeah, 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 but you're pretty competitive. I, I, see, I, yeah, I, yeah, I am yeah. pretty competitive, yeah. but... Um, you know, the, the, the day of my birthday, uh, we do departure photos of people who were transitioning out of the White House, and we let them bring their families in. They take a picture in the Oval Office. And this wonderful staff person came in, had a really cute uh, young son. He looked like Harry Potter, yeah. six-year-old guy. Yeah. Came in, he had an economic report for me, had graphs and everything. And, uh, he says, you know, my birthday is in August, too. I said, well, uh, how old are you going to be? He said, uh, seven. Uh, he said, how old are you? I said, uh, 52. He said, whoa. <laughs> wow, <that's>... Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> I understand you did the late night shows, but I feel like you may have said to Mike Allen, you, you know the clock is ticking. It's, if, is this a feeling as you enter 2014 that let's try some other things because it doesn't matter what Gergen or the chattering class really think? Well, I think I'd say a couple of things. I think let's sort of unpack all of those. I think that we, you know, there is more room. While there's still a lot more work to do in terms of improving the economy, and we there are very serious situations in the world. When we came into office, we were in a, uh, you know, a financial crisis. The you know we were on the teetering on the edge of heading into a the second Great Depression, um, and so that required a level of seriousness. And there would not be, I think, a lot of tolerance for things like doing between two ferns in in that period of time. There's still very serious things happening at home in the world, um, but it's a little bit of a different environment in the country for sure. I think, in, you know, in terms of visually, in terms of our events, we're always trying to do new things and trying to do, you know, some combination of, you know, big, bold, iconic pictures. You know, a few years ago, we were doing an event on travel and tourism. We went and did it with the Magic Kingdom in the background. We knew that would break through. Um, you know, this year we've tried a couple of different things because we're always looking for new ways to do it. I do think... At the core, what has been the heart of 
the Obama political story is the idea that that of change from the bottom up of a of a movement of people who support him, who support what the direction he takes the country, and are willing to, as he would say, get up, you know, get up early, you know, knock on doors, make phone calls, et cetera. And so that's why you see a lot of the events we do are always about people because that's what that's why Barack Obama ran for president. That's why he's the first president since Eisenhower to get 51 percent of the vote twice. Um, and so we will always sort of pay heed to that imagery because that's at the core of what we do. Right. And I'm all for the president at big moments being seen with people. Sometimes I look, though, at a major moment, a major speech by President Obama, and you've got the people arrayed in coral risers behind him. And I'm looking at it online or on the tube. And as a message guy, I'm a bit frustrated. I'm thinking if I could only squeeze in a message there, something to give the moment time, place and yeah, message and its own spot in history. This week's people sometimes look a lot like last week's people. Well, I think we can. I think we'd stipulate that, like you can all. We can always do things better. We can always find new, better ways to do things. Um, I think that some of the ways in which people think about things are different now. Imagery, imagery is much more fractured. It's the people who are seeing, you know, the event on Wednesday, not the same people are going to see it the following Tuesday, um, which is different than the world used to be uh, in a lot of ways. But having said that, like. You know, we, you know, you want to, you know, we do, you know, in our, an ideal event for us, the image, you don't have to have the sound on to know what the president's saying. You know, I think that's a little bit different in the context of a campaign, which is a rally setting. But if we're doing our manufacturing hubs, we're in a factory. And, if you, and you may not, you may just see the Chiron that says Obama talks manufacturing and you see a factory. Or even if there's no Chiron, you're like, Obama's doing something around a factory. If we're, uh, you know, doing something on healthcare and his presence with nurses or, you know, so right. that's an important piece. I, you know, that's, you know, that's something that every president has done and, you know, we try to do as well. One thing that doesn't need a presidential moment is, as you've talked about before, the use of Twitter. And as we're talking about the year of action 2014 and the use of the pen and the phone, you retweeted White House Counselor John Podesta a few days ago about the legislation protecting Michigan's sleeping bear dunes lakeshore. And the image was not President Obama signing a bill into law at the side of a lake, but rather a pristine picture that John added to his message, a beautiful piece of national heritage. Because that, that is something that we, you know, we know photos have tremendous currency online. People share them. You know, what we've done with photos uh, with Pete Souza and Instagram and Twitter has been tremendously powerful for this presidency. Um, and so you want an image that, an image of the president just signing that bill would be interesting, but it doesn't really tell the story because because for, for schedule reasons, we were here in Washington the day we had to sign it. And so we did it in the Oval, surrounded by some stakeholders and members of Congress. But if you were sharing that online, you wouldn't know what that meant. You see a picture of the actual wilderness itself. It means something. Pen in the phone, year of action. Another one of your major initiatives is raising the minimum wage. Gap stores hears that, hears that call and raises the salary of their employees president goes up to Manhattan last week, two high-dollar fundraisers. But as he's cruising up Madison Avenue, there's time for an OTR, a quick trip into the Gap. Yeah, I think this would be perfect for Sasha. I'm here at the Gap, A, because it never hurts to bring something back uh, when you've been on a road trip. Uh, you get points when you go home. So, gentlemen, just want you to all take that tip. Uh, the second reason is uh, a lot of you heard at the State of the Union, I talked about uh, the importance of giving America a race. You know, corporate profits are, are doing well, stock market's doing well, but uh, for a lot of folks out there, they haven't seen a race uh, in a very long time, and their incomes are flat. And the gap 
uh, made a recent announcement that it was going to raise the minimum wage uh, for all its uh, starting employees. And uh, this is going to mean uh, for thousands of folks who work at Gap stores all across the country, uh, a little more income, a little more money in their pockets, uh, help them pay the bills. To buy a sweater for Sasha and Malia, is that a pure coincidence? <laughs> well, we, you know, I think with the, the Gap is an iconic company, their decision to raise wages, not because the president asked them to, not because they were, they did out of the goodness of their heart, but because they thought it was good for business, um, is, was something that should be recognized. And everyone, you know, many, many people in America recognize what a Gap looks like. And so we knew that would break through. It's like, you know, when we, the first event we did after the State of the Union, um, uh, was to go to Costco in Maryland. Costco uh, is another company who had raised their wages on their own because they thought it was good business. President cited them in the State of the Union. Everyone knows a Costco, and we had meant something to be there. We went to a Home Depot uh, to do um, a uh, sort of an energy efficiency home building event a few years ago because um, people know Home Depot. If you get an opportunity to to visit an iconic company, an image that people understand and believe. Uh, we should definitely try to do it. And I think it was the, you know, and it was, uh, President enjoys that because it's a, these events where you get to go out and just be with, you're not necessarily just giving a speech, you're just, you're mingling with people, the very surprised, happy people who are just shopping in the Gap one day in Manhattan and the president walks in. It's a lot of fun. The president and the press, Dan Pfeiffer, I consume as much as I can, and I consume a lot of what gets produced, made, and distributed here in this building. And one of the longest running, but sometimes most underappreciated television series developed during the Obama's years hasn't run on any network, but rather the website whitehouse.gov, and it's surpassed 200 episodes, and it's called West Wing Week. It keeps chugging on week after week. What's the purpose and the reaction to it? Well, I think there's it. Uh, video content is a very uh, important tool. It's a lot of how people communicate these days, particularly in a world where uh, people can watch. The amount of people who can view video on their mobile device has gone up so dramatically even since we got in here um, and even since the first campaign where an iPhone was uh, came out pretty late in the campaign um, we you know West Wing week is a chance to show people a little bit what happens behind the scenes here we think there's we've noticed a tremendous interest in the video content of the White House that tells this tells that not necessarily the newsy story but the interesting story is about how the sausage is made here we've done a couple of them on um, the letters the president gets was tremendously popular. They, they do a behind-the-scenes thing when we have a, a big event like a state dinner or the Easter egg roll or things like that. And it's, just, it's interesting to people. It allows people to engage with the White House, just sort of see the faces behind the president. And uh, we try to do it in a little bit of a fun way on West Wing Week. Um, and frankly, when I worked in this building, you could have memorable moments that happened in the East Room, the State Dining Room, the Roosevelt Room. And they were well covered by the mainstream media. And today, let's be honest, they largely ignore the day-in, day-out work of the executive branch, and unless it's rooted in conflict. So you're basically replacing that old coverage function for citizens who really are interested in it. Right. That's exactly right. We have, um, we have to work, as anyone would in this age, so much harder to get your message out. So we have to do all the traditional things every pre pre previous president did. Interviews on mainstream media outlets, 60 Minutes, Meet the Press, et cetera. Uh, we have to do press conferences like they do. We have to have a strategy with our press staff to engage with all the reporters who cover the White House on a day-to-day -day basis. Then we have to have a, strategy, a digital strategy, a social media strategy that gets it out to people 
um, who were interested in and you and we're using where people share and uh, distribute help distribute our content for us and we have to have a soft media um, which is not really a fair description of it but a you know other alternative non-traditional sets of media we have to do all of that to do what one press conference or one East Room event would could have accomplished 20 years ago and it, it gets harder every day like I have no uh, I, I do not envy the person who has my job uh, four years from now I heard you tell that to Mike Allen in his talk with you, and what I always tell people is that I don't envy Dan Pfeiffer, because I think it's some exponent of Moore's Law more difficult to create and manage the message than it was in the 1990s. So I don't know what the next guy will do, but I know you have it pretty damn tough. I, I, I appreciate that. Things do move so much faster. Rom Emanuel told me at the end of our first year here that his first year working uh, in the Obama White House was felt like all you know, seven or eight years he spent with Clinton just because of the, I mean, one, there was the crisis atmosphere of 2009. Not that there weren't crises on a fairly regular basis during his time in the Clinton administration, uh, but also just the absolute speed to which everything happens. And the flip side of that, too, to your benefit, is that it happens so fast and it burns out so fast. Yes, the that is, uh, there is things that, well, you know, lasted, uh, you know, weeks and months I think in the '90s, um, there were sort of you know the sort of faux faux controversies sure. that j- Republicans had ginned up against President Clinton and trying to gin up against us burn out faster here. In part because this is the the downside to the uh, sort of disaggregation of information is it's harder to get your message out. People have choices about what they can watch. The upside is there are all these alternative voices who can. Uh, make the counter argument about things or get information that maybe the New York Times, the Washington Post isn't covering out into the public sphere. And it's very, that is very useful. I think for, I mean, it's useful for a White House to have that when you're under attack, but it's also just useful for the world. Like, I do believe that it would be much harder in 2014 to sell the case for war in Iraq uh, than it was when that actually happened. There would be too many, there would be so many people who would by the nature of their platform and the nature of their business, uh, challenge the premise that a lot of the uh, mainstream media was carrying. One other tool that you use, and I don't think President Bush used much, and there wasn't much of it back in Clinton's day, some Hunter S. Thompson specials notwithstanding, is the long-form substantive print access special. That's what I'll call it. There are the White House beat reporters, there are bloggers, there are anchor men and women who come down from, from New York for a sit-down and it ends up as an edited segment of airtime. But then there are the heavyweights like David Remnick of The New Yorker or Jeffrey Goldberg of Bloomberg View. And if you give them enough access and give them some time, they drill into the substance of an issue and serve up a nuanced portrait of what really goes on here in the West Wing. This is a, you know, spend a ton of time thinking about how information dissemination and consumption works in this day and age and how the changes in technology and the changes in the in the economics of journalism have you know changed the profession because it's still given everything else is true the best way to get information to people still to this day and I think it'll remain true for a long time is through traditional uh, to, to the traditional news sources network news local news the papers um, your reaches many people it's still better than any other option um, and one of the things that I think is as report as information disseminate is sort of reporting has boiled down to 140 characters long away. What that has done is actually it hasn't destroyed long form journalism; it's strengthened it because uh, well, I, I'm not sure I know exactly why, but you have these really great 
pieces that have been that are are done um, that and should, and end up being consumed by a lot of people and then being sort of consumed by the day-to-day press. And so we have found opportunities that like, I guess maybe there are so many trees right now that there's even greater urgency to find a way to show the forest. And that's what we try to do with David Remnick. We try to do with Michael Lewis mm-hmm. uh, in 2012. Yeah. And we're going to, we're going to look for other opportunities to do it because it's just, it's very, it's hard to tell your whole story in the bite size increments that this has been the challenge probably for the entire entirety of our presidency is you have a, you have a, a large, important story to tell, but it's hard to, for people to understand it in bite-sized increments. And so if we can get an opportunity to do it in long form, that's good. The president can always come on polyoptics. Uh, we, will, we, will, we, will put that on the, we will put that on the list. You mentioned Pete Souza earlier, and I think Pete's role as the official White House photographer is one of the most important but not fully understood posts here in the West Wing. Can we look through some of Pete's work and get your thoughts on some of the events behind them? And I'll put all of these shots on the website at www.polyoptics.com so our listeners who want to can follow along the conversation. This first shot, Dan, from the St. Patrick's Day luncheon on Capitol Hill shows this wonderful moment every year when the president and speaker of the House, John Boehner, get together to break bread and toast the Irish. And it shows this image of bipartisan bonhomie that when you see it, you say to yourself, if these guys get along so well as this picture seems to show, this town might not be in such bad shape after all. And I was a big fan of the dinner series last year, and I don't know if you were, but this shot would seem to augur for more of that. Well, I mean, this picture, I think, Demons, is probably one that... uh, Given the nature of the Republican caucus uh, these days, the speaker would probably wish we had not released. Um, but I think what it does show is that through all of their differences, um, and they are varied uh, and sometimes intense, uh, I, th- I think there's a real, there's a mutual respect and friendship between the president and the speaker. The barkeep's son, as he said in the State of the Union. They believe, and I believe, that here in America, our success should depend not on accident of birth, but the strength of our work ethic and the scope of our dreams. That's what drew our forebears here. That's how the daughter of a factory worker is CEO of America's largest automaker. How the son of a barkeep is Speaker of the House. Yeah, I mean, like the president said that with admiration for uh, what the speaker's achieved, his story, and what it represents for uh, the rest of America. Uh, you know, the I think the dinners were a great thing. I the better relations people have, I think, the better. We are living a world of very stru- structural challenges in our politics that prevent uh, progress. You have the most by just sort of reaction to the Obama election, the financial crisis. You have the most right-wing version of the Republican Party in history. We, redistricting has put it that you have very, you know, there's 16 districts that, uh, currently held by Republicans that this president won, and he won a very large election with a lot of electoral votes. That just narrows the space for compromise. And then, you know, the sort of the rise of the super PACs have made it so, um, you know, it makes it harder for people to break with their party. And that's much more true on the Republican side than our side. Um, and just because of the, the, you know, we have, we're a bigger tent party with um, more consistent 
sort of more with more uh, tolerance for compromise than the Republicans currently are, and that's a structural thing. More dinners is better, but we can't solve those things right. uh, with wine alone. Next is a Pete Souza image of the president with pr- the Prime Minister of Ukraine, Artseny Yatsenyuk. Prime Minister Yatsenyuk to the Oval Office, to the White House. I think all of us uh, have seen the courage of the Ukrainian people in standing up on behalf of democracy uh, and on you know the, the desire that I believe is universal for people to be able to determine their own destiny. Nothing has been more tension-filled, Dan, in the last few weeks than the president's series of weekend phone calls with Vladimir Putin. You, like me, watched the Winter Olympics in Sochi, and the last thing you might expect then is to see Russian troops in Crimea. And yet the crisis comes to your door and you have to deal with it, both substantively and importantly at the image level. Well, this was an important meeting. One of the, as we work to resolve the situation in Ukraine in the best way possible, de-escalate what's happening with Russia, um, the most important thing we can do do to here is strengthen the Ukrainian government. We do that through... Um, uh, financial resources, uh, loan guarantees, uh, support from countries around the world, um, and, and giving the, I think it's a powerful thing for the uh, the new prime minister to be able to come to the United States and sit in the Oval Office with the president. So I think that's an, it was an important meeting, substantively an important meeting, symbolically for our support. The next Sousa shot from the president along a rope line at Coral Reef Senior High School in Florida, Dan, on March 7th, is the kind of shot we'd used to see all the time in the Clinton years, but not so much today from the stills in the pool. It shows the president seeming to have a really good time in very close quarters with a crowd along the rope line, high-fiving a youngster. Why have these images seem to have largely disappeared, the security bubble, or is it just fewer opportunities that you give the pool? And we don't see a lot of the rope line pictures anymore, people really communing with the president. This is the, uh, the picture you see in almost every paper, local paper where we go. I mean, the... Uh, I would, the denizens of people in this town who uh, call the president aloof should come to the rope line with him. He is a person who is energized by being with people. He loves getting out of this town and talking to people. He loves spending time with children um, and uh, should see this because this is what uh, this is what you know the folks around the country see every day and what you know I see every time I travel with him. Moving back to the Oval Office, Dan Pfeiffer, it's March sixth. And the president is meeting with his national security team. I see the back of the head of my old friend Tony Blinken, along with Dennis McDonough, Ben Rhodes, and others on the national security team. And there's the president informally resting his behind on the resolute desk, making his point. Is this the way the team hashes through issues like Syria, Ukraine, or the missing Malaysian jetliner? Well, I mean, it depends. He, you know, he's an active guy, so a lot of times he'll be walking around or standing as we're having a conversation. You can tell by the fact that Dennis uh, and Ben Rhodes are standing that this is a uh, sort of a shorter meeting or a meeting that's about to end. Um, I'm guessing, although I'm not sure, that he probably was about to do or had just finished a phone call with a foreign leader, uh, which we would have done at his desk. If we were having a meeting, he would be most likely be sitting in his chair at the other end of the room. Obviously, Dan, there was the dust-up last year between the news photographers and press secretary Jay Carney about their access to moments like this, usually reserved for only the official photographer, Pete Sousa, and his colleagues. Given consideration to the flip side, which is to say, mm-hmm. if you guys say to the press, we're not going to let you into an event because we consider it a private event, mm-hmm. right? The conversations between the presidents, what have you. 
And then Pete Souza or whoever takes those photos, have you ever considered saying to them, you can't release those photos? Because we have said it's a private event. Because it, it, it surprises all, we, all we, of us when you say it's a private event. We put on right? a schedule when things are open press or closed press. I don't know that we designate them private. What, what I can say is that uh, here, here's, uh, look, Mike, Mike, I think here's, I, I really, I think this is an important discussion to have, and I think that it's important to have it within the context of all the changes that are happening in the media. And uh, here's what I know, is that for years, through presidencies of both parties, there have been White House photographers, official White House photographers, who have, by the nature of their jobs, had uh, been in rooms with the president when others aren't there and taken pictures and released those photos, often on the same day. This image shows the president at work, and it's not in any way staged. Can you experiment in different ways in which you might allow a single photo pooler to stick with Pete like a fly in the wall? and allow an independent lens from time to time to see the president at work like this? We've talked to the, well, I'd say a couple things. One, uh, we, there are definitely changes in the way, in technology and distribution that change the nature of the relationship between, uh, you know, sort of a White House photo now can be out in the world to a lot of people within minutes in a way in which it couldn't before. And the news media used to be the gatekeeper to that. You send it to the AP and the Washington Post, they decide to run it or not. Um, Having said that, I think we agree and acknowledge that we can and should do more in terms of access for the White House photographers. And Jay Carney and Josh Ernest, as deputy, have been working with them on that. They have been, um, you know, we have found ways. You know, we did a, a we got the, gave them a chance to get a shot of the president working on the State of the Union, uh, which a lot of folks use the day before the State of the Union. And we're looking for other ways to do it. Um, pooling is a particular challenge for uh for the photographers um, for reasons I don't fully get. I don't fully get them either. If you tell the photographers to pool and that's their only option of getting a newsworthy shot of the president, whether working alone or with a Dalai Lama, I think they'll pool. Though they, I mean, they have, uh, it's different. I mean, photos don't transfer the way print pool does. And so, but the, the main bottom line here is we're working uh, with them to try to, like we, we want, we want this, we want the story, you know, we want to, we want, the behind-the-scenes story is a very good story for this president. It, 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 they, it shows uh, what really happens here. I think it um, dissolves some of the, the caricatures that folks have portrayed about the president over the years. And you just got to find a way to do it in a way that is not disruptive to your day-to-day -day, uh, day -day running of the White House. And so we're always looking for ways to do it. This next shot, Dan, is one of those pictures that you mentioned, showing how Barack Obama really connects with the kids. He's at the Powell Elementary School in Washington, D.C. on March 4th. The young man is using a stethoscope to hear the president's heartbeat. In what may be described as the ultimate game of playing doctor, the, president, the presidential physician he is in waiting. And it looks like the president is having an enjoyable checkup. He, the president loves kids. He, we, he jokes that he's the baby whisperer because he can get he can always get kids to stop crying either on the rope line or if he's doing a photo uh, line with folks. Um, and he, he has an absolute blast at these things. So if there's a chance to get him to a school and see young children, we do that. And, you know, I, I think he knows that for, especially if we go to, uh, you know, some schools we go to, we, you know, this can have a permanent effect on kids' lives Absolutely. to have a chance to be with, the, be with the president. And uh, particularly when, if we're like at the school in the south side of Chicago that he went to near his house where he can talk, 
talk about how his story, you know, for them, like for these kids to hear how a lot of the president's experiences were not that different than theirs is a pretty powerful thing. You allowed the president to be interviewed by basketball great Charles Barkley for the NBA on TNT. And Sir Charles talked to the president about a number of issues, including uh, Obama's new My Brother's Keeper initiative. You have a, a really exciting initiative coming up called My Brother's Keeper. Yeah. Uh, explain it, because when you, they were explaining it to me, it sounds amazing, but I'd like to hear it from you. We're going to pull together uh, private philanthropies, uh, foundations, working with governors and mayors and churches and nonprofits, and we're just going to focus on young men, men of color and, and, and find ways in which we can create more pathways to success for them. We're not going to create some big new uh, government program, but we're going to work with communities, businesses, so that, you know, whether it's helping to set up early childhood education so that young people can read early, or it is creating mentorship programs and apprenticeship programs so that a young person can get exposed to what a career is like in, uh, you know, a factory as a machinist where you're getting paid $30, $35 an hour, but you may not even know that that option is available. Mm -hmm. Across the board, from the time they're young all the way through, uh, the, their first job, we want to help more young African-American men, Latino men, succeed. In this next shot by Pete Souza, it's February 27th, and we see the president entering the East Room with Christian Champagne at the start of the My Brother's Keeper event, delivering the message of expanding opportunity for young men and boys of color. My neighborhood is tough. It isn't always safe. And just recently, I was robbed while walking home from school. But those challenges have not stopped me from, from wanting to have a better and safer place to live and work. BAM provides a safe circle where men can learn skills they need to stay on track. In BAM, we work on developing integrity, accountability, self-determination, positive anger expression, visionary goal setting, and respect for womanhood. In the circle, we support each other uh, but we also challenge each other to live up to these values in school, home, and in the community. Last February, President, President Obama joined our BAM group. When he came into our BAM circle, it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. Most people don't, do, not, do not get to meet him, or if they do, it's just a handshake. He sat down with us and shared his story. And to my surprise, he was just like me, growing up with our father, and sometimes not too concerned with school. <laughs> Is this another one of those Year of Action 2014 initiatives you might not have Otherwise, you might not have thought about doing earlier in the administration. This is something the president himself really drove that he wanted to do um, in his second term, and he was moved. You know, he talked about this in some depth when he when he talked about the Trayvon Martin verdict um, in the briefing room that day, and he um, it's something that's very personal to him. A lot of people in the White House are very invested in it. It has gotten this is what we refer to as a phone initiative in the Year of Action. Because we're using the boy pulp of the White House to get foundations and private industry involved in in, uh, in initiatives that would uh, specifically bring opportunity to young men of color, um, and so this is a powerful thing. And this was a, this was a really great event. And this 
and this the kid, this kid Christian Champagne, who introduced the president, was uh, a you know very he's a very bright future. Of course, the president gets to spend a good deal of time while in office on the road. And the next image is a picture of him in St. Paul, Minnesota, with Secretary of Transportation Anthony Fox. Dan, they're at the, this Metro Transit light rail operations. This would be a classic travel for communications trip to show progress on infrastructure issues. Is the president a willing character in these designed photo compositions that the advanced team creates explicitly to send a message on the road? Well, he, uh, well, the president really, he really enjoys trips like this one or to factories. He's fascinated by how things are made, um, how they work. And so he, he loved this visit in Minnesota for two reasons. One, he, like uh, many Americans, he thinks trains are really cool. Um, but also this trains, this transit line was one of the first projects that came from the recovery act. And so to come back five years later and to have this be there and be affecting people's lives and affecting the economy, uh, in Minnesota, you know, simply because of something we we had done that he had done uh you know meant a lot to him and he thought it was, he thought it was very cool and he like he loves you know he loves these uh he loves these trips and to get, getting out of washington is great but just getting and being with people and seeing where they work and seeing how they do things is uh he, he th- thinks it's one of the great privileges of being president and sometimes dan the president can go on a trip executing the duty of his office and a lot of the trip is no fun at all in fact it's human misery, sorry, sorrow, and grief. And whether it's to visit the victims of a tragic shooting, the aftermath of a natural disaster, or here in this shot aboard Marine One a few weeks ago as the president views the drought conditions in the Central Valley of California. He's there with Representative Jim Costa, Senators Feinstein and Boxer. It's often a very hard burden to bear. Either, with, either when you're with him on Air Force One or back on Marine One or back here at the White House, how does he process these tougher moments of being president? Well, this is, I think, one of the uh, tremendous un, or underthought-about challenges of the presidency is the is the emotion on a day-to-day basis, where you're meeting with a make-a-wish kid in the morning, and then uh, speaking to a raucous rally, and then doing photos with people who are leaving the White House and their families, where this is their one moment to be with the president, sort of managing all of that. And he, the president. Uh, is the first one when these things happen, uh, these sort of tragedies and natural disasters, to suggest he go. He, I mean, he's really he really understands that this is there's a pastoral role in the presidency, and it's one he takes very seriously. That people, whether they like the president or not, um, want to see that he cares. Uh, you know, whether Republicans or Democrats voted for the president or Mitt Romney or John McCain. Uh, you know, some of the places we've gone have been some of the most Republican places in the country, and it, but it has a lasting impression that when you're in this low, this dark moment in your life, you've lost a loved one, you have uh, lost your home, um, and you don't really know where things are going to go. But the idea that the leader of the free world uh, will come to your town and talk to you means something. It's a very important thing. It, it sends a powerful signal to the country and the people there that we care, and we're going to dedicate every resource we have to try to make to try to improve your situation. We'll touch on one more facet of the presidency, Dan Pfeiffer, and that's his role as head of state, welcoming his counterparts to these shores. In this next shot by Pete Souza comes the recent visit of President of France, Francois Hollande, and there was the state arrival and the state dinner, the usual elements of protocol at the executive mansion for these visits, but then you take Hollande on the road to visit Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. It reminds me of the old days when we went with President Clinton to Milwaukee, to spend some time with German, uh, with the German community, along with Chancellor Helmut Kohl, 
or with Russian President Boris Yeltsin in a hilarious news conference at Franklin Roosevelt's home in Hyde Park. Well, now for the first time I can tell you that you're a disaster. <laughs> Be sure you get the right attribution there. Я надеюсь, что вы правильно все это поняли. What's the thinking with saying enough with the White House? Let's hit the road with some of these visiting heads of state and government. The, the, this is a fun thing to do. Uh, it, may, it makes these makes state visits a little more interesting, gives them a unique flavor. Um, we've done a bunch of different ones over the years. We took uh, uh, President Hollande to um, uh, to Monticello. Uh, President took David Cameron to a uh, NCAA tournament basketball game a few years ago. Uh, we went to an auto plant um, uh, with the president of Korea. Um, you know, where we were talking about the Korean Free Trade Agreement and what that and what that meant. Um, so that you know, this is you know, the president likes the ability, likes the opportunity to show off America, makes the trip a little more interesting, um, and it's a way to demonstrate you know with these countries the, you know the the importance of the relationship. So Dan Pfeiffer, that's been a recent tour of the. Pete Souza work of action shots of the president, but there are others behind the scenes moments with staff in which you are prominently featured that shows some of the genuinely fatiguing moments of your job that I must expect you have. You mentioned last week that you would come back to the White House to bid farewell to Gene Sperling for the third time 10 years from now. And you've also tweeted to David Pluff recently that, and I quote, I don't want to make us feel older than we are, but it's been seven years this weekend that we moved to Chicago. So some of Pete's shots seem to illustrate just how much mileage you've put on your body since then. The obligatory hand on face or loading dock moments that are so much of a, of a part and parcel of your job. You've almost run the table, Dan Pfeiffer. Can you last three more years? Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, Mike Allen asked me that question when I was at his political event. And the question was, what are the odds you'll be here on the last day, on January 20th, 2017? And I said, not very good. And he said, so you're saying there's a chance. And I said, uh, almost impossible. And Politico ran a story that says, Pfeiffer to, Pfeiffer to leave before 2017. Um, I, uh, I don't know um, how long... I'll stay. I mean, I'm certainly, you know, every one of us is here at the pleasure of the president. And um, this has been an amazing experience um, to think, you know, I, you know, I moved to Chicago without any real sense of where this would go. And the odds certainly weren't that it would end here. And to be through all of this in this historic time is uh, you have to take a step back every once in a while to think about it. um, You know, there will be a day when, you know, if you can't find great excitement and interest in some part of your day when you work in the White House, then that's when it's time to go. And I've been fortunate to be able to uh, do that for many years now and to work with a great group of people and to have uh, the opportunity to serve the president. There may be, a, you know, I don't think it'll be soon, but at some point where um, it, I will, where the, where the, you know, the pure exhaustion of having done this for so long 
um, you know, will take over and I'll decide that uh, it's time for me to leave and for someone else to do this. Um, I don't think it'll be soon, but it, it could happen. And if, if I feel like I'm not, if I can't give this my all uh, and it's not inspiring to me, then that'll be time to go. We talked about exciting things that are happening in just the last two weeks, different things. Taking the leap of faith to do Between Two Ferns with Galifianakis, talking with Charles Barkley on a highly watched TNT segment, bestowing the Medal of Honor on these 24 deserving heroes, and then the ticking clock about getting as many millions as possible to sign up for health insurance before the March 31st deadline. There's no end to these issues, and sometimes the tough issues that you'll face until the last day that Barack Obama is in office. And it's a testament to you, Dan, that among those who were with him in Grant Park in 2008, with the varied roles that you've had here, you should count your blessings that you've had five years and still counting, watching history unfold before you. I mean, I feel tremendously uh, fortunate about this experience. Like, I could never really have thought that this would actually happen, that I would get a chance to be a part of this, the history of president, the historic nature of the president's getting elected. And then just, I mean, the tremendous amount of his, of history that's happened in the five years to be here to have a front row seat to it is uh, been amazing. The president said to us not long after the reelection, um, as we thought about our time, people were making decisions about to stay or to go and what was right. A lot of people have family obligations that uh, demanded that they uh, return home or, or take a different role. But he said to us, he said, um, never again in, in our lives will we have such an, uh, have so much opportunity to do so much good for so many people. And so you think about this, it's like, this will never happen again. You know, we'll, you know, there are a lot of people here who, um, you know, a lot of you may get a chance to come back and work in a White House, and there are people like John Podesta and Gene Sperling, uh, who who have come back. But the odds are you probably won't, and this is your one chance, and you don't want to, you know, you don't want to waste a day of it. And the president has, uh, you know, his the second term, particularly in the last couple of months, you know, as we got a, the calendar turn in twenty fourteen, has you know has really focused on that fact. It's not, I mean, three years is a long time. I mean, I. Three years ago feels like a hundred years ago to me. I can't even imagine thinking back to beginning of 2011. Uh, so the, like that would be about the time that David Pluff came back to the White House and we're always interested in Congress. It's a hundred years ago. Uh, so three years is a long time to go. But you know, it's a sen- there is a sense of urgency that you can't uh, you don't want to waste a day of it. And right. being part of it's a, a, a special thing. Have you chronicled the different people that have occupied this very office over the last 20 years? Is there a list? of those who've had it? Well, everyone everyone does a little bit differently um, is who's in what office. Um, Evelyn Lieberman once had this office. And then in the Bush administration, Alyssa Mastromatic. I think Harold Ickes had this office. Steve Roschetti claims he had this office because he, he walks by here and t- tells me he had it. In the Bush administration, for a while at least, when we came in, they had a bunch of different staff who were all like four, four people in this office, which seems insane to me being in it. Um, and uh, Alyssa Mastromonaco and Mona Sutphin uh, had it before me. Um, and so, I mean, just thinking about the people who worked in this building, you know, going back many, many, many years is, uh, is a somewhat daunting thing to think about. Um, uh, so it's, you know, I mean, this, is, this building is a, is a special place, and every, 
like nook and cranny of it has has had history made. In a Mark Noller-like way, have you ever quantified the number of nights that you've been awake at 3 a.m. in this building? <laughs> uh, we'll leave that to Mark Noller. Um, the we've spent. I mean, there have been. You know, you spend a lot of your life in the building when you uh, work here. I've been fortunate to spend a lot of time on the road with the president, so I get out of here more than others, which is a very uh, very nice thing to do. Dan Pfeiffer, I can't thank you enough for spending time with us today on Polyoptics. Good luck toward the end of the month getting as many people enrolled as you can. Thank you so much. Where do people go to get enrolled if they haven't already? Uh, healthcare.gov. Thanks a lot, Dan. Thank you. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS.